Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit, where we share insights from the industry leaders on how to build and sell great tech products and companies. This is Nilima and Ankur, your host. In today's show, we are going to be talking about all things sales, the art of B2B selling, getting the attention of potential buyers in an incredibly noisy security space, and building great sales teams. To help educate us on this and more, we have Brandon Conley as the guest in today's show. Brandon is a seasoned sales and go-to-market leader with over two decades in B2B and security selling experience. Although he's worked in small and large companies, his superpower is his ability to get startups to accomplish their business goals at various stages in their journey. Hi, Brandon. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. To kick things off, uh, Brandon, I'll start off with a warm-up question. What trends in B2B selling do you foresee as being temporary uh, versus permanent in a covid and the post-COVID era? It's a little too early to tell, but clearly everyone's able to work from home and there's less need for office space. Although that's pretty much been the case for salespeople in the enterprise uh, security space for a long time. So that really hasn't changed. Uh, What remains to be seen is whether or not uh, we'll get back to in-person selling, which is really crucial in very large enterprise relationships and deals in the near future, or if it's going to take uh, a long time before customers and sellers are comfortable sitting in the same room. I'm starting to see some encouraging signs that people are ready to start getting back to traveling and meeting in person. Just attended my first in-person event with a partner in the Mid-Atlantic, which was a a golf event, sort of a perfect way for people (laughs) to get together and and not be too close. But uh, 80 people turned out and everybody was extremely excited to be at an in-person event again. So I I believe it will come back. I think it's just a matter of time and people getting to a comfort level where they re-engage. But relationships, in-person meetings, both in the boardroom and uh, outside of the office are are extremely important to to building long-term relationships with customers. Do you worry that uh, some of the entrepreneurs and CEOs may get too comfortable having sales go up and up because security is still on up and up with uh, COVID, but then the costs are way down. They're like, well, you don't need to travel. Just sell the deal over Zoom. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I am a little concerned about that. On the plus side, it has really helped uh, small startups like uh, the current company that I work for that we haven't had to spend all of that money on travel and entertainment, uh, right? So we've been able to put that back into alternative demand gen vehicles, virtual summits and, and others that continue to yield, yield results, even though you know we're not traveling and we're not in person. So uh, it's a double-edged sword, or I guess there's you know a silver lining in the COVID cloud in that we've learned how to operate more efficiently and still execute. Where do you see the most disconnect in the all digital model? Is it the first contact or is it like understanding how they're adopting or liking the solution? Where is that piece, which is kind of really missing the personal touch. I guess it's somewhat fortuitous that this happened in an age where most security solutions or a large number of them are completely API based, right? Where there's no appliance to deliver and install and configure, nothing to plug into a rack. You know, most of the the work that needs to be done in order to get the product up and running 
uh, either for a POC or for production can be done uh, through Zoom. So I, I don't feel like a lot has dropped off in that engagement process. Uh, it's just the the trust factor, right? Which is uh, if I make this bet on you and I invest X tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in your platform, uh, will you be there to support me when we run into the inevitable issues? And I think it's harder to establish trust over Zoom than it is in person by creating a personal bond uh, between the seller, the SE, and, and a buyer. Um, so I think that's the one piece that uh, is a little difficult to do uh, remote. Got it. And in the security space in general, especially the uh, company that you are now the CRO of App Omni, which is all about SaaS security, have you seen a kind of significant uptick in demand as customers are going more and more SaaS? I mean, that intuitively, you would think that that's the case, but are you seeing large enterprises going to a big security vendors or th- they're still saying like, no, you know, we'll, we'll look at the best of breed. And, you know, if you've got the best of breed solution, we'll just buy it from you. So far in this market, because it's so new, uh, the, the concept of SaaS security posture management or cloud security posture management for SaaS, uh, that most prospects are not waiting for their incumbent vendors to build a solution. You know, it's taken a couple of years to build the platform. And really, we're, we're selling SaaS security around platforms that have been in the market for 20 plus years. So uh, although COVID has accelerated, you know, the adoption of SaaS or at least caused companies to purchase more licenses for those SaaS applications, and they may have needed previously, most of these platforms that we support were already deployed well before COVID. And the security issues exist. It's just that nobody was shining a light on them. So I, I think as people have gotten somewhat comfortable with management of posture and security in IaaS and PaaS, as evidenced by the number of companies in that space, they're starting to turn their attention now to SaaS security, which has really been underserved for many, many years. These CISOs are starting to recognize that there is as much risk or more for the critical data in their SaaS applications as there are in either public cloud or their on-prem solutions. And so it's really about educating the market that this problem exists how complex it is and how vast, given the number of SaaS platforms that are out there, and then showing them a path towards being able to manage that centrally. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I was uh, reading, I think, one of the analysts report and, you know, over the last decade and even to the next decade, like SaaS, even relative to IaaS and PaaS, will continue to dominate in terms of the growth over the next five, 10 years. So it makes complete sense for there to be a big opportunity now, you know, looking at your background, uh, Brandon, since the early times, uh, you've been in sales. And I always uh, tell my teams about it, that in any tech company, building and selling are the two hardest functions. And if I had to pick one, I would, as a product builder, say selling is harder. Why did you decide to go into sales and not like some squishy job with squishy KPIs? Why sales? Selling is so hard. It's so stressful. Every quarter, you got to deliver. Why? Well, you know, as a seller, I would say that building the product is harder. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Part of that, you know, I guess a little little background uh, on me might might inform the answer. You know, I had a somewhat unique upbringing as part of a military family and spent ten of my formative years from about seventy nine to eighty nine over in Germany. And th- there were lots of opportunities there for entrepreneurial kids to you know, get a taste of, of running a business or uh, working. So I, I took my first job at the age of 13. It was a paper route. Didn't pay terribly well, but I wanted to, to make my own money and be able to, to choose what I did uh, on my own without having to ask my parents. And, uh, you know, I had a series of jobs after that. Eventually, before going to college, I started a painting company 
uh, a franchise in order to provide 50% of my, my needs so that I could qualify for in-state tuition. So I, I got the experience of hiring teams of 10 plus and multiple crews to go out, do estimates and execute on the work. It was, it was rather difficult. There's a lot of customer sad issues in that business. You know, I had to, to manage uh, my finances and multiple uh, credit accounts for you know, ladders and paint and all that stuff. And, and really for several years came to understand what it took to run a business. And so by the time that I had to choose a career, I had always been a geek. You know, as a programmer, really basic stuff, copying programs from PC Magazine onto my <laughs> 128D, right, writing stuff in basic. But you know, I, I loved the early internet, BBSs, and a little bit of hacking here and there. So I was always fascinated by tech. I took a job as a, a headhunter in New York City, and the, the primary responsibility there was taking sysadmins, Unix sysadmins, from the big banks and moving them around. So as part of that, I learned Unix and really loved the technology far more than I did the headhunting, the recruiting. Uh, so I ended up going to work for one of the startups in Silicon Valley that we were uh, doing recruiting for. And so that's when I made the transition from you know, headhunting, which is a form of sales, to uh, product sales. And I, I think you know, I was comfortable doing that because of my work experience in the past. And I also just had a real passion for uh, the technology and learning it, even if I wasn't implementing it. Got it. And w would you say, Brandon, like having done it yourself and having like hired hundreds of sales leaders in your career, you know, is this something like are the best ones born that way or can they be nurtured as a combination of both? It's a combination of both. I, I think there are people who are born uh, naturally outgoing, gregarious, that have gumption, you know, when they walk in a room and can, can fill the room with their personality. Those folks tend to be natural salespeople. It can also be nurtured, but that's a lot harder. Uh, and so when you're building a startup, you have very limited bandwidth to coach, you know, young and experienced uh, sales guys that don't have that DNA, right? The, the really good ones just figure it out uh, on their own. Uh, and they put so much effort uh, into building their, you know, as we like to say, their franchise of the business and the territory that they cover, that they, they need very little handholding, right? And, and I tend to learn a lot from them, right? There is no one right way to do enterprise sales. And I don't expect conformity out of my team. You know, the Chicago Bulls, uh, they weren't all Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. But the team uh, working together was very successful. And so, you know, I, I think a mix of different personalities, as long as everybody, you know, is swimming in the same uh, lane, sa same direction, has the same motivation, sees it as a team effort and not purely about themselves. I, I think that's the formula for success. You've worked through your uh, career, I think, about in four to five startups. And somehow you've cracked the code of joining the right company at the right time. So my, my question is, how do you vet a pre-series A startup to be a tech leader in a space? It's almost like betting on an idea, like VCs do, right? So what's that secret sauce of identifying the right company, the right team to join? Well, I think if I have a skill here, it's picking the right companies as opposed to uh, having any particular insight that, that others don't. And, and that's really a combination of a couple things. Uh, the first is, is this a problem that is big enough to build a substantial business around? And clearly the SaaS market is enormous, right? It's two thirds of cloud spend. So I start with that. And then the second piece is, has anybody else solved this and is it doable? Right? Is this something that could be achieved 
with the right people, uh, the right investment and the right effort. Uh, and then finally, it comes down to, you know, the, the people that are running the company, the investors that are backing them, what their track record is and, and their history, and then my ability to articulate the message. And, you know, I, I guess I've been very fortunate in having joined companies that were building products that solved the problem. And, and I'm always looking for, you know, not what the problem is today, but, you know, where, where the puck is going to be in a couple of years. And so, you know, for me, it's much more fun to stay on the, on the front end of the wave than, than to surf for a long time on, a, <laughs> on an older wave, right? So I, I don't even see it as that much of a risk. And uh, when I talk to young salespeople, which has really become the more rewarding part of my job, is finding kind of diamonds in the rough and, and helping them uh, advance in their careers and be successful. I tell them all the same thing, which is take more risk earlier in your career than you are comfortable. Right. I, I wish if I could go back, I would have joined earlier and earlier stage startups, you know, uh, in my early 20s, as opposed to kind of backing into uh, earlier and earlier stage companies. There's very little downside to trying and failing. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get to try and succeed, you know, multiple times over. But uh, you learn uh, a ton with with every one of those experiences. One of the things that you mentioned, Brandon, is big market like what's your evaluation criteria to assess a big market is it just say hey look it's SaaS, it's public cloud i know it's going to go do you go through some analysis or it's just more about keeping up with the industry trends well i i do not want to speak on behalf of app omni or the rest of the executive team there but the, the way that i look at new opportunities is never beyond more than three to five years and that's not to say that I wouldn't stay at the right company longer than that. But my, my experience has been that really innovative and successful startups are far more likely to be acquired than they are to go the long path to IPO. And frankly, it's one of the reasons I chose to leave uh, the Casby company that I worked for. Yeah, It became obvious to me that you know there'd be an enormous amount of dilution and it would take 12 plus years uh, for them to reach a public offering. And I, I don't find that part to be fun personally. Right. So when I evaluate an opportunity like App Omni, the question I ask is, can I double revenue year after year after year for the first three to five years, given the size of the market and what we can uh, establish as a value for the product? And if the answer to that question is yes, then it's just blocking and tackling. Right? It's, it's going back to the well for the, the people that I've worked with in the past that have uh, shown the ability to execute, telling them the story, uh, hopefully conveying my passion for you know, th that particular technology and the problem that we're solving. And then, you know, assuring them that they're going to have the same type of experience again uh, as we have had in the past at other startups. And so far, that's that's really worked. But I, I'd say it's more intuition uh, than it is studying markets or studying trends. And, and in this particular case with App Omni, I've told the story a few times. The reason that this clicked for me, and I think I looked at about six or seven startups before choosing App Omni. The reason it clicked for me is that when I was at Netscope selling to a large enterprise in the east of the US, on a very regular basis, customers would ask us if we were ever planning to do any inventory or monitoring, you know, management of the backend APIs and settings, the control panels for the SaaS apps that we were providing DLP for. And the answer from product management uh, and leadership there was always a very direct no. <laughs> we're not going to do that. And, and at the time, I, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand what, what customers were asking about. I had a vague notion that there were these settings in the back of SaaS apps. I had no idea at the time how vast that, that backend infrastructure really is, right? Uh, like in Salesforce, for example, there are something like 80 security relevant settings 
knobs, levers, switches uh, that most security teams have never seen. They don't have a login for, and they're not even aware exists. Right. And so when I saw the scale of the problem with something like Salesforce, I thought, hmm, uh, unlike the IaaS and PaaS space, there are tens or you know many dozens of SaaS platforms that contain PHI, PII, and each one of them is a snowflake. Right. The backend control panel, the APIs, the data, the schema, they're, they're all completely different. Right. So it's one thing to solve for AWS, Azure and GCP, which basically offer the same services and call them different names. And they're really all infrastructure services that, that uh, are analogous to what you have on prem. But in SaaS, every one of them is completely different. And nobody has a time in security to become an expert and read 300 pages of security release notes every time Salesforce comes out with a new version. Right. So if, if a Rosetta Stone could be built... <laughs> for the, the top, you know, the largest, uh, most complex enterprise SaaS platforms, it would have tremendous value, just like Redlock did for AWS, Azure, and GCP. I love the passion. You said when you evaluate these startups and you evaluated about six before joining App Omni, you also figure out whether you can articulate the me message. Doing that for a completely new space requires you to understand how the tech works. It requires you to understand how it will get adopted by the customers. And it really requires you to be on the cutting edge of technology, which means you're probably following trends way closer, just like product people do on the sales side. Is there a special brand of learning you follow from a tech perspective? As for you know, following the tech, I, the easiest way for me is simply to, to use the product. Right. So this remains the case for every one of the companies that I've worked for. I could install and configure the product, you know, not in an incredibly complex environment, not for every corner case uh, or you know special situation, but just getting the product up and running, connected, setting basic policies, you know, running scans. I could always do that, and and I require that all of my salespeople, not just the SEs, but all of the salespeople on my team, have to be able to do the same thing. And it's important for a couple of reasons. One is uh, we need to divide and conquer because we have limited resources and we want to touch as many customers as possible. So I don't want my SEs on first calls or second calls. The reps should be able to do a convincing demo to get it to the next step. And then, you know, the second issue is, uh, as you said, it's very difficult to talk to a customer and, and really uh, achieve any credibility if you don't know what you're talking about. And if you're throwing out the wrong acronyms and you clearly don't understand the, the space that you're in and you're just pitching without, you know, having an appreciation for what this stuff actually means, I, I think you don't have any credibility as a salesperson anymore. I, I think the, the time has passed that you can be a non-technical sales guy who lives on the golf course or takes people out to dinner. You know, we have to add value and, and you have to come into the situation with more knowledge of the problem uh, and how to solve it than the customer has. One of the things that struck me about also your progression and the type of companies that you've chosen is Netscope, you know, you joined pretty early stages where you're trying to build and sell into a new category, like CASB was relatively new. Same thing with Redlock, relatively new. App Omni, new category. And Nilima alluded to this early on, like, like 3,000 vendors. So for the listeners, typically the CISOs that you talk to, there are projects. There is a project for endpoint, there is identity, network security, how do you get these CISOs to pay attention? How do you get them to cough up some money? Yep, that's our biggest challenge with every one of these startups. And really, it requires patience. Uh, so I, I know when I come into these situations that it's going to take several quarters of educating the market, 
getting into our prospects uh, priorities for the following year and getting budget allocated, right? And so we, we've got to build that funnel for next year immediately. In the short run, you know, we have to close business. And so, you know, if there is no budget, we, we look for opportunities to displace other products. Uh, in the case of App Omni, that's quite difficult because we are not positioning ourselves as directly competitive with CASB. We, we don't replace it. We complement it. There is no other tool that they're using for SSPM. And so it is truly a, a brand new market, completely unbudgeted. The, the way that you do that is by educating them about a problem they've never thought of, about before. Uh, we like to say shining a light in a room that they've, they've never looked in. And once they understand the, the, the risk involved, they, they have no choice. But, but to solve the problem. So we've actually had a few CISOs kind of yell at us saying, damn it, why did you show me this? You know, that, <laughs> now that I know about it, uh, I've got to do something about it. Uh, and it can take a couple of months for them to go find the money. But if you can show them that their external Salesforce community portal is exposing 18 million you know, master person records, uh, along with all their contracts and uh, everything else that they've stored in, in Salesforce, uh, they have no choice but to go and fix that problem. The other way is through trusted advisors. Uh, I, I would not have been successful at Redlock, Netscope, or uh, having the success that we are here at App Omni if it weren't for referral partners who tried to distill the noise coming out of you know, Silicon Valley and all the, the security startups into something that their CISO friends that they have relationships with you know, can, can handle, right? And so I, I've worked with four or five different referral partners now that each focus on different verticals, you know, like financial services in New York and you know, manufacturing and other places who advocate for us with their networks uh, of CISOs. And that's you know, gotten us in front of people that we never otherwise would have been able to get in front of this early. Uh, in a market. That, that's that been absolutely key. And then finally, um, thought leadership, right? So uh, just having product slicks and a, and a deck isn't enough, right? You've got to show that the, the company that you work for has a vision that is coming to fruition, right? Uh, that, they're, that they're able to see what's coming around the corner um, and that they uh, understand the problem far better uh, than, than the customer does, right? And so you've got to go out and take a, a stand, and make a statement that this is a problem that has to be solved, that cannot be ignored. Uh, and you have to support that through research, right? And findings of, of bug bounties, of you know threats that independent threat researchers have detailed. So uh, I think the combination of those three things is what you know helps us quickly get in front of uh, in front of CISOs. Yeah, very well put. I, I do want to double click on the education piece. So the education side, is it kind of hand-to-hand combat? one customer at a time? Is it big marketing launch, spending tens of millions of dollars, going to the, the shows? Like, you know, they'll burn through the cash and go to shows and they'll be one of the 3,000 vendors. Like, how do you get the education piece right? Uh, we've been extremely frugal uh, with respect to, to field marketing and App Omni. I think the, the last major trade show that we did was Dreamforce. Um, a year ago, of course, this year it was uh, it was canceled, or or it's virtual. I don't recall, and that yielded uh, some good leads that did turn into business. But since then, uh, we've only been doing you know, virtual CIO CISO summits that rotate around the country. Those have actually been very successful for us. So we'll reach twenty to thirty C level execs a time through those events. It is mostly one to one selling. Fortunately, my my CEO was a CISO at Salesforce and a, a CTO at ServiceNow, and has a very strong network in the valley. And so, some of our early customers came from that sort of friends and family network. The second is the referral partners, which they only get paid or participate if we are able to close business, and so that's low cost upfront. It's just part of our channel. 
expenditure. And then finally, I, I figured out you know, early on here at App Omni that our number one route to market was going to be the GSIs. And the reason for that is that each of them has enormous practices built around Salesforce Consulting, Workday Consulting, ServiceNow Consulting. Uh, and in that situation, we're not competing directly with cybersecurity expenditures. Uh, we're actually making a case to the line of business IT people that own and operate these systems. So not, not every aspect of App Omni is pure security. There's uh, a lot that benefits the IT team in their uh, ability to deliver patches, hotfixes, configuration changes, and new releases of SaaS platforms. And so we aligned ourselves with uh, some of the big GSIs. Uh, they have then gone out and educated their own architects, uh, its salespeople and, and sort of SEs. And then they have gone out and uh, started running pilots of App Omni at organizations that we wouldn't have touched for years. Uh, so channel has been incredibly important for App Omni, and it is omni-channel, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> but it starts with GSI. We've got multiple relationships, you know, like the one that I, I just described. Uh, and the GSI side, we then went to referral partners. That's been incredibly successful uh, for us. And now we're starting to get a lot of traction with the uh, the typical cybersecurity reseller channel uh, that's starting to register a bunch of opportunities now that they've seen uh, some some pretty significant deployments occur you know, in their customer base. One of the new trends that we're seeing in selling is the e-commerce in B2B. When do you think this will come into the security space? Well, I hope never, <laughs> because uh, that would be bad news for enterprise salespeople. Um, I, you know, I have yet to see anyone be really successful with selling a security product, you know, through a portal. Uh, anything beyond uh, something as simple as you know maybe an antivirus client or something like that. Early in the evolution of a startup, the the product is not designed for self service, right? That that's never what startups design uh, for. It's to solve the problem, right? The, the meat of the problem. And so until you're mature enough um, to dedicate resources to making self-service practical, um, where it doesn't actually hurt you more than it helps you because a bad experience with the product is the last time you're going to interact with that customer for a very long time. I, I think that's multiple years into a, a startup's journey, right? It's just not something that I focus on. I, I don't believe that complex enterprise security problems are solved with point and click simple tools. Things have to be customized uh, to, to each customer's environment. Their, their business processes are different. The integrations are different. The team you know, structure, the RACI uh, is different. Um, I, I believe that it will remain uh, something where relationships are very important, where the deployment schedule is months right, or years. But of course, in the, in the case of API products, it's, it's, it's relatively short. So yeah, I, I don't see that as a major trend uh, in security. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, this has been kind of predicted for last decade, and you know, in terms of selling large deals to large enterprises, much has remained the same. I think back in the days, Dropbox and a lot of these kind of a whole bunch of other CRM tools will compete with Salesforce. We'll just have a quick button, enter your credit card. Now that has had some success in small and medium businesses, but you're hundred percent right. Like large enterprises, and especially in security, uh, it's a really, really hard thing to pull off. You really need people that can be trusted and it requires a lot of education. So, you know, time will tell obviously, but you know, not much has changed, but it has been predicted before and every year it's going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now uh, I want to switch gears on the people side, uh, Brandon. One of the things that uh, I personally observed is somehow you kind of crack the code on A, like hiring and retaining top talent, but then also figured out how you get 
a lot of these people to follow you around. Like how, and, and you also said that that's one of your passion, building great teams. How do you do that? I, I think it's just a benefit of old age. <laughs> and having done this, uh, you know, multiple times, and again, being fortunate enough to be successful with uh, with each of the exits, and, and then you know, really treating everybody that I hire and, and rehire with uh, respect, and, and by respect, I mean complete transparency, right? On on what the good is, the bad is, you know, what the package is. I, I don't, you know, negotiate packages. Uh, in the early going into startup, I'm, I'm very clear, sort of black and white. This is what it is. This is what everybody has. Uh, we all have an equal stake in the company, you know, and we're we're going to go and execute on this mission, you know, as we have before. And uh, I think that integrity and consistency is is incredibly important in sales. Uh, you lose a tremendous amount of energy uh, in environments where it's you know more doggy dog and and arbitrary, uh, which I've been a part of before <laughs> uh, and found really uh, brutal and uh, not a good experience. And so I, I try to recreate that same environment everywhere I go. And uh, the people that have worked with me in the past know that it's it's going to be the same when they come with me to the to the next company. And, you know, the timing is not always right. You know, I, I would never pull, you know, a guy out of a company who's doing incredibly well. You know, that, that wouldn't make any sense. I just kind of wait for the the intersection of timing and opportunity and uh, luckily have built up a big enough, you know, bench of really strong people that, you know, I pretty much don't have to use recruiters anymore, which I feel bad for my my headhunting friends. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's all about trust and uh, prior proof of, of performance. Um, and then uh, honesty and transparency. What are some of the key characteristics above and beyond what they did last year? How do you find them? Because with a lot of these startups, uh, you make one mistake, and you've lost nine months. And that could be fatal. I, I have made plenty of bad hires, Encore, <laughs> and paid the price too many times uh, to count. Like nobody bats a thousand in this, but I've gotten a lot better at it, and and that's because I rely far more on first person, you know, first degree references than I do anything else. I, I, I will say that if somebody hasn't achieved a significant W two at least a couple times in their career, they're probably not the right person for for my team. Right. There, there are some people that are just willing to perform at, at a lower level that, uh, you know, I can't afford to bring uh, onto the team. But uh, when, when I get a reference from somebody that has executed for me multiple years, uh, been you know, a pleasure to work with in every possible way, uh, when they tell me that someone that they worked with previously is the same uh, and they vouch for them, that, that has never gone wrong. Right. So it's more important than ever that, you know, reputation and referrals you know, be a huge factor uh, in hiring decisions. And it, it saves me a tremendous amount of time and pain and, you know, avoidance of uh, cost and, and uh, missed opportunity uh, by relying on those first, you know, first degree referrals. It sounds to me like brilliant jerks have no space in your team. They don't. Uh, I think, uh, you know, bad apple poisons the whole barrel and uh, I will trade some performance for, you know, the right culture fit. And, um, you know, that, that means collaboration, everyone liking each other, uh, you know, no backstabbing, poaching in their territories. I have no, no patience or tolerance for any of that nonsense. What are some of the most common misconceptions about B2B selling among the founders or product people in general? Sure. Um, and I, I want to be careful to say this is not specific to anyone. Some of the things that are recurring themes are, you know, first-time founders especially um, believe that if you build a, a good product that, you know, it's going to sell itself. Uh, and that clearly is not the case. It, you can have the best mousetrap in the world, but if no one knows about it and you don't have competent people behind it, uh, it's not going to sell. 
the the second is uh, they they expect it to sell immediately, and uh, you know you have to kind of remind them over and over again that when you're breaking into a brand new market, you're creating that market from scratch. And as you guys brought up earlier, companies don't have big buckets of budget sitting around for neat new toys, uh, at least not not very often, right? So uh, they have to put faith in you and a team that you know several quarters down the road. Uh, all the effort is going to come to fruition and that the, you know, the wave will crash, you know, even when they, it feels like it isn't happening. And, and that was particularly true this year with COVID, right? You know, most of our prospects in the early spring uh, and into the summer completely shut down. They were focused on you know, getting Zoom licenses and uh, sending laptops out to people. Uh, they had much more to worry about than a new technology um, for a problem they, that they weren't aware existed, right? So that was a little bit scary, but I, I never, you know, lost faith that if we continue to educate the market, we demonstrated success, uh, we got happy customers to talk uh, about uh, their success with us, uh, that it would come. And, and that has happened, right? Everything sort of reopened at the end of August, and uh, we've been incredibly busy uh, since. You know, I think those are the the main issues. The, the other thing that, uh, you know, I, I won't blame this on them, but uh, I always want to be much more aggressive than they do uh, in terms of hiring and getting people in the key markets, feet on the street, uh, countering the competition. I, I want to be in a market before my would-be competitors, not after. I used to joke that uh, there should be a rule in Silicon Valley. If you're building a security product, FIPS 140-2 should be in the first version of the product, and so should common criteria. Right <laughs> back in the back in the uh, you know network security days, uh, and in this market with SaaS, you know I think things like FedRAMP should be done at the beginning. You, you've got to build the the field of dreams, uh, you know, and the customers will come. But doing it the other way around really delays uh, your penetration into that market. Uh, you know, SOC two and and other other things, right? So I'm always pushing, you know, hopefully respectfully, but just having gone through the experience so many times now, I, I'm extremely confident in, you know, the team's ability to execute if, you know, we have the basic tools and, and processes and certifications in place to go after the market. Is that typically something you talk when you're joining the company? Investing in FedRAMP, for example, for a startup would be a lot of investment upfront. So from a vision, product vision perspective, how aligned do you think the uh, onboarding sales leaders need to be with the founders? Uh, that's in incredibly important. Uh, they don't have to have all of those things the day that you know you join the organization and run sales, but you have to understand what their attitude is towards investing ahead of the curve. And it's not just in certifications, but also in people, right? Uh, in salespeople getting into markets like EMEA, you know, or Asia Pack, and what the timing of that you know is in their minds. Uh, and then you have to judge whether or not you're going to be able to to change them by proving your ability to execute. And once you've done that uh, in one market, you can then you know go back and, and ask for more with, with the confidence that you've already demonstrated uh, the ability to execute. Uh, so uh, you know again, I think a lot of this just comes down to um, having done it over and over again, as you guys have. Uh, you learn things that first-time founders uh, just don't have the benefit of, of knowing because they haven't gone through it multiple times. You know, I, I've always had a really good relationship, uh, I, I believe, with um, the product teams and the companies I've worked for, the, the leadership, and not everything. You know, you don't get everything that you want all the time, but you know, as long as everything's moving in the right direction and uh, you're executing and, and everyone's satisfied with each other's contribution, then, you know, you can work those things out. But I, I would say that I am more aggressive than founders tend to want to be. Um, I sort of align more to the VCs there. They're, they're always pushing harder to, to, to bring on more people and more resources and do more things. Uh, but, uh, you know, the founders have a responsibility to make sure the company's lights stay on <laughs> during the process. 
Yeah, I I personally foresee a career in venture VCs, Brandon. I I'm jumping the gun here. You sound like a VC. You sell like a VC. You push like a VC. So uh, switching uh, last question before our rapid fire. Women in sales. Um, I, I I come from a product background. Very few women in product. Uh, we are seeing a little bit more now uh, in the enterprise security side. Uh, sales, I think, even less. What would be your advice to women wanting to break into sales, especially enterprise security sales? You know, that's a tough question for me to answer. I I'm not really sure that there's a difference uh, in my mind when, when looking at two candidates. I, I'm mostly interested in you know, at this point in my career, uh, experienced people, right? And so they have a track record and, and they have, uh, you know, references that'll speak to their ability to to do the job. I think in some ways, you know, women have an advantage in sales because uh, the buyers are predominantly uh, male and aren't used to, to working with, with female salespeople. And, you know, I'm not implying anything negative there. It's just, it, it's a different dynamic uh, for a female salesperson, uh, just given how few have been in the in the industry traditionally. I think it comes down to the same things for women as it does for men. Uh, demonstrate a passion for the technology, um, demonstrate you know, commitment, motivation, and drive, and that's through you know prior performance. Beyond that, yeah, I, I don't think there's much uh, much difference. I, I'm not sure why more women don't pursue careers in sales, at least in tech, um, because uh, the ones that I've worked with have been uh, very very effective. So with that, uh, Ankur, you want to take over for the rapid Yeah, absolutely. All right, Brandon. This is where the fun starts. Uh, just a few questions, rapid fire, and we'll get you off the hook. So kick things off. Uh, your favorite book uh, covering sales or for that matter, any any other subject? Uh, it's probably Atlas Shrugged. I'm a big Ayn Rand fan. Very cool. Top three companies to work for uh, outside of App Omni, obviously. <laughs> you, took, you took my answer. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of really exciting companies out there. Um, HockeyCorp comes to mind. Um, I, I think, you know, ServiceNow has a, a really bright future. Uh, Salesforce continues to execute. Um, a lot of really cool startups in the identity and privilege access management space like CloudNox. Cool data classification, discovering classification companies like Big ID. There are a lot of places that I would be excited uh, to go and work. And then, you know, one of the other companies I interviewed with is focused on Istio. Uh, yeah. I think that space is uh, is really exciting. It's it's a huge rock to lift for organizations, legacy organizations. But if they can, uh, you know, deliver on the vision of that, it could be incredibly powerful. There's a lot. You know, I, I'm a geek. I really love tech. I think there's so many cool areas of it. Um, I always want to stay on the security side as opposed to business applications. But yeah, uh, th those are the ones that are kind of top of mind for me. Yeah, all great names, uh, both in SaaS and startup and security space. Uh, any prediction on the price of uh, Bitcoin over the next five years? It's at 13000 right now. <laughs> this is a timely question. So uh, I, uh, I bought my first handful of Bitcoins about a month ago. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's gone up from 11000 to 13000 in that time. And I got to say, that's very, you know, alluring, but also a little bit scary because I guess it can go down just as fast. You know, I sort of buy into the notion that in 10 years, 15 years, a single Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, okay, uh, the downside of losing this chunk of money is way, way less than the potential upside. So uh, fi finally got into it. I don't think I'll have a huge portion of my portfolio uh, in Bitcoin, but uh, have a healthy chunk now. So I'm, I'm in the game now. Yeah. 
the Winklevoss twins uh, agree with you. They are predicting uh, it to go to, what, 300K in a couple of years and probably a million. So you're, you're 100% right. Uh, plenty of upside and very little downside. You said you're an investor. Which stock or stocks did you buy in the last uh, six months? Uh, well, aside from the the Bitcoin, I have a nice, healthy position in Palo Alto Networks, and I'm a big believer in the company and the stock. I, I've invested in a uh, fintech startup uh, out of Seattle uh, with a gentleman who founded it that was my CTO at Aventail 20 years ago. That's called uh, Strive. So I'm dipping my toe in the fintech uh, world. And then, you know, for the most part, I don't buy individual stocks, right? I, I invest you know, through a through a robo broker. Uh, robo advisor in relatively aggressive equity uh, ETFs, and then I have a you know a nice stake in, in Netscope, and and all these guys uh, in the finance world keep coming to me asking to buy them pre IPO. COVID vaccine this year, uh, not not mass market, but uh, do you think uh, an FDA approved uh, COVID vaccine comes about this year? I do, very optimistic on that. Very good. And the last question: What advice you'd give your eighteen year old self? Yeah, not to be repetitive, but it, the advice would be to have taken more risk earlier in my career and have developed some artificial confidence, you know, at that point. It's very difficult to replicate confidence, you know, time and experience give you that. But I always tell young salespeople, like, take a risk. You can do it. Things are way simpler than they appear. 100% agree. That's uh, one advice I'd give my 18-year-old self as well. So... Uh, with that, we'll call it wraps. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully we can have you back again a year or two when uh, App Omni would have a successful exit. Fingers crossed. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.